Hi everybody, this is Kevin Goldstein. You are about to listen to episode 12 of Chin Music with a special co-host Joe Sheehan. I am uh, recording this introduction because I am currently absolutely heartbroken. Our special guest was to be Marie Johnson, and we'll talk about having him on as a special guest, and we'll talk about how it was great to have him on. Uh, and I just finished recording about a half-hour interview with him about his career and how he got into being the English-language commentator uh, of Sumo for the NHK Broadcasting System in Japan. And when the recording was over, uh, he talked about how his uh, he had some weird technical thing happen on his end. The page said it wasn't recording, and I said, I bet it's fine. I, I was able to hear you fine the whole time and when i looked at everything was there it did not have a track of him so there's nothing to listen to and it's a shame because he was really really charming and 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 informative and funny and has just a wonderful australian accent and a, and a good sense of humor and a great attitude and and it was just wonderful and it made me so happy and this is a guy who you know every two months i can't wait for the sumo to start and this is the voice i hear this is like you know interviewing Costas or something. This is a, a really important person to me and, and for a sport that I love and I, and I hope to spread the love a little bit and um, hope to have Murray on uh, in two months when the next tournament is on. Uh, and, and maybe we'll talk about that. If you, I, I'm going to say something I said on, on the, the in, in interview with Murray, which is, um, again, the, the, the May Sumo tournament begins this weekend. Uh, it's free uh, if you just want to watch the highlights. You can if you have an Apple TV or a Roku or a Chromecast or whatever, really, um, just search for the NHK World app, and that app will allow you to watch their content for free. At NHK, it's kind of a PBS equivalent, so it's free. It's free content, and and every night, uh, look for uh, Sumo Grand highlights, and you can you can watch this amazing sport. Uh, meanwhile, I will uh, now put the show together. Uh, it says there's an interview in the middle. There's no interview in the middle. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm really heartbroken and, and I'm sorry. I apologize to all of you. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, have all our recordings work next episode. And hopefully in two months we'll have Marianne again to, to, to preview the next Ba Show. Uh, until then, enjoy uh, what was a lot of fun in, in spending the afternoon talking baseball with Joe Sheehan. And as always, thank you for listening. Welcome to episode 12 of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fancrafts. My name is still Kevin Goldstein. I'm still in DeKalb, Illinois, and our co-host here remains in New York. <laughs> As our co-host this week is a bit of a legend. You know, if you, if, you, if you built an online baseball content hall of fame, this guy would be in the first class, and I'm very happy that he's joining us, and, and I welcome from his luxurious accommodations in New York City, it's Joe Sheehan. Joe, how are you, man? Good. Good well, start. I'm, I'm using very old headphones. I'll say that right now. Uh, 
they just fell off my head. So this is going to be uh, wild. But no, I'm actually technically not in New York. I actually live up uh, just outside of the city now. But it does seem like you've had a lot of large market uh, guests, and I think that's just you know you're just one of those large market bias guys who doesn't it's really care about bias. the right. yeah exactly. You don't care about the small market writers. Uh, but no, it's, it's good to talk to you. I think I'm just going to fire movie titles at you for the next hour and a half, and you're going to tell me if you think they're great or not. That, I think that would be a perfectly good good content, and if, as long as they're Matt Damon films, I'm going to you know, <laughs> continue to say the dude's never made a great movie. Um, it's funny, because you know, believe it or not, there is some organization to this show, uh, even I don't believe it. I did send Joe a, a, a preliminary agenda uh, on Wednesday afternoon. It is now Thursday, and things have changed quite a little bit. Um, and so we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, we'll get into the, the the breaking news and Albert Pujols. We'll get into the no-hitter. We'll get into some some more bigger picture things going on. Uh, our special guest, Joe, will not be with us for the special guest as we are recording that one late tonight. Uh, it comes, our special guest is in Tokyo. And uh, he is the only uh, horse racing sumo commentator in the world. He does the English language commentator, commentating on the sumo coverage for NHK in Japan. And there's the the summer tournaments coming up starting this weekend. And we're going to preview sumo with uh, Murray Johnson, who's kind of in a, has an amazing story. And we'll talk about his career. Uh, but first, Joe, I, this just broke. It's uh, it's 1.39 p.m. Central Time. This broke maybe 25 minutes ago. Uh, the Angels have DFA'd Albert Pujols. And I, it, it, you know, A, it makes me sad because of the march of time. But it also feels like um, you know, we're almost a decade into people kind of making fun of Albert Pujols for his decline and, and his lack of value and, and people not really appreciating um, just how remarkable this guy was. Yeah, I think that there's a parallel here to Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. was an absolute superstar for the first half of his career playing, you know, in, in Seattle. And that's the pick, the guy we picture. And I think that over time, that will be the guy we picture. And then Pool, you know, so Griffey went to Cincinnati, had all kinds of foot and leg problems, and wasn't mm-hmm. that close to that same guy uh, for the second half of his career. He, that was actually better than Pujols has been. But you know, if you're a baseball fan under the age of like 25, you really don't get what the big deal is with Pujols. Um, and for me, Pujols, you know, the way he looks on the page doesn't really get at it. This is a guy who was an excellent defensive first baseman, who yes. was one of the best hit and run hit, hitting hit and run guys I can remember. Um, it wasn't just about the power. He had, you know, he was a, a low strikeout guy in an era, you know, when, when power hitters pretty much routinely struck out 90 to 110 times a year. He just, he was a complete player and he just hasn't been that guy for the last nine years. And, and even with that, you're talking about a guy, you know, with 667 career home runs who still, has more walks than strikeouts. The only other player in baseball right now with more walks than strikeouts is is Luis Arias, who's obviously like a weirdo contact hitter. Um, and the other one's Albert Pujols, and it's kind of amazing. And you know, his first uh, his his Cardinal stint, if you will, was was eleven years, um, top ten MVP. Every one of those years, top five, nine of those eleven years, and his average season was a thousand forty seven OPS. I'm looking now, like, he had a 997 OPS in 2007 and finished ninth in MVP voting. It was a down I really, year. I really want to go back and look and see what the heck happened that the guy with 1,000 OPS finished ninth. But um, he was trout before there was trout, right? He hit the ground running, rookie of the year, top five MVP, and just didn't stop for 10 years. Um, and as I said, I think that, I know I've certainly this year, in some of my writing, tried to highlight, he, he stole a base a couple of weeks ago. And I ended up doing a whole big thing about that because you know, he's still got the baseball mind. 
it's just not connected to the body in any way. He physically can't play the game anymore. The reaction time's not there. There were some embarrassing moments last year where you, you, there were shortstops who were basically playing him, you know, five, ten feet on the outfield grass. Right. Because they can position him there and can't get to everything and still throw him out. So it has been hard to watch as – I mean, I'm not one to say guys should retire. I, I don't – if, if they, will, they will pay you to play baseball, you keep going to the park every Take day. Take the money, baby. Yeah. I'm on team get paid, and he'll still get paid, of course, because he's got the deal. But, you know, I, I, I would – I'd like to think that if it were me, they'd have to tear the uniform off me, and I think that's been the case for Pujols. Who, and even as recently, I want to say it was 17 or 18, there was a story, some analyst, somebody from, from our world, wrote something basically saying you know, he was one of the worst players in baseball, which by war he was. Um, and the Angels came to his defense. Mm-hmm. And even, uh, I guess I forget it was the GM at the time, uh, basically said, no, you know, we don't see him as that type of player. Uh, I think there was still a lot of respect for him within the game, within the clubhouse. But, you know, you can only carry a coach for so long, especially in this era. I think that you could carry Pools more easily 25 years ago when you were only carrying 10 or 11 pitchers. I know this right, is a hobby right. horse of mine. But it's, when you only have three or four bench players, it's just, it's virtually impossible to keep a guy who's basically a mascot. And, and another stat I don't think people might appreciate, like you said, I mean, this guy has 115 stolen bases. He was good for yep. 10, 15 a year for a while during his his, uh, his Cardinals time. Um, according to some early stuff I've seen on Twitter, and God knows how reliable that can be, um, from the Pujols camp, it sounds like he still wants to play. Um, do you think this is over? Do you think someone gives him a shot? Maybe even just for the PR milestone piece of it? Like, I... I is is there any way he ends up somewhere? Well, there's no milestone. I, he's, he needs 33 homers for 700. That's not, not getting to that. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's well over. He, he actually just tied Nap Lajoie last night for hits or passed Lajoie, and he's like a hit behind Eddie Murray. For, he's got a chance to get into the top 10 for hits all time if you really want to push it. But you know, the one thing I looked at, and I just tweeted this out: if you're the Cardinals, you've got a bad bench. You don't need Pujols to be a first baseman. You've got Captain America over there who's going to play 155 games. You've got NL rules, so you need to hit for the pitcher a couple of times a game. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's the soft factors of bringing Pujols back. I mean, they're carrying Matt Carpenter, who has a 600 OPS. And Carpenter's been a big part of that franchise, too. I don't want to dismiss that. But is there an angle here for the Cardinals to say, you know, wait the 10 days so you don't, you're don't, you not on the hook for the $23 million. Right. Sign him for the minimum. Put him on the bench. You know, I again, it gets to that whole thing where if you're only carrying 12 hitters, it's a little harder to do. But I think there's they're the only team that I think would get enough of a bump from signing pools. There've been a lot of jokes about Larusa actually, and you know why not? Let's let's let, let's put somebody else in front of Andrew Vaughn as long as we can. Uh, but no, I think the Cardinals are the one place that could make a reasonable argument for bringing in Pujols. And again, you know, it's largely because you have to hit for the pitcher, and even. Now, I mean, Pujols is a, you know, he's, he's a threat to hit one out. He had five homers in, in 92 plate appearances for the Angels. So um, do I think they'll do it? Probably not. But it's the only place I could see him landing. Because I think there'd be a huge um, reaction to that. I think Pujols getting to play out his last four months of his career as a pinch hitter with the Cardinals. I love that story. It would be a great story. And, 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 a, and a statistic that nobody cares about and will never get tracked in any sort of media. He's 21 total bases away from Barry Bonds for fourth all time. That's six homers. Five homers in a single. He can do that. Yeah, he can do that. Um, so we had a, a, you know, again, since the agenda, we had a no-hitter too. Uh, John Means, who's been in kind of incredible and, and underappreciated for the, you know, he finished last year strong and he's been unstoppable so far this year. Um, 
the changeups one of the best in baseball and, and he no hit a team that is not a good offensive team and you know, we have two no hitters already this year. Everyone's talking about how batting average is down. Are we in a position we're going to have like five or six this year? Well, no hitters are, are random events, but they're all going to obviously more likely when the league's hitting 230, which is where we are right now. If you look at the other seasons that we had, we had seven no hitters in 90 and 91, and those were also both very low offensive years. So, yeah, I mean, there's a potential for more of them. I don't want to. I don't want to take away from what Means did yesterday. It was a getaway day against a bad offensive team in a good pitching park, yada, yada. I get all that. But it's a no-hitter. And lots of guys pitch against bad teams in pitchers' parks on getaway days and don't throw no-hitters. And, and Means was pretty dominant. I mean, you mentioned the changeup, but I think the increase in velocity that he's shown over the last couple of years has made that changeup play up. Um, and there were a lot of guys on him in the offseason. You know, Mike Petriello did a big piece on him in the offseason. You know, Saris was on it. And there were a lot of people who saw this kind of development from him coming. And, uh, you know, yesterday was a big day. I think Alex Fast actually was in tears uh, <laughs> talking about this. So, and it's a great story, too. Means, Means lost his dad recently. And, you know, you always want to see players bounce back from something like that. I, I'm sensitive to it. I lost my mom. I still, you know, I still do things thinking, oh, I hope she'll make, I'll make her proud. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great story. And yeah, I think we, there's the issue of where are we with no hitters in a league that's hitting 230. Um, I saw a stat today. I was doing research for the newsletter. So in 1967, the year before the year of the pitcher, the league hit 242, which is one of the lowest league batting averages ever. This year, when hitters fall get ahead 1-0, they're hitting 242. Wow. You spot the league a ball, and they're still only hitting 242. It just it kind of put the whole thing in perspective to me. Just pitchers control the game now. So I will. I do think it's interesting. You look at the guys that have had the no-hitters. It's a pretty broad spectrum. You've got... Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it, and, and, like, the means is 12 strikeouts is, is the most strikeouts we've had in a no-hitter. No one's thrown, like, that 16 strikeout one, which, which is what you'd expect in today's baseball. Um, Musgrove didn't even strike out nine in his. It's not. It's not the guys who are just blowing everybody away and, and, and whiffing a million hitters. Yeah, you have a better chance if you strike out 14, 15 guys. But, I mean, Means did it with, you know, the great changeup. You know, Musgrove with the breaking stuff. He doesn't even throw a four-seamer anymore, really. Um, and, you know, Radon with the story coming back from all the different injuries that he's had. It's just, it's, mm-hmm. it, and, of course, Madison Bumgarner, who had, what, an eight ERA hitting into his no-hitter? Right. You're counting that one. I am. I do. Look, it, <laughs> I just don't care about these kind of rules. I, I but I, I, I hear you. It's the, it's the inconsistency. If you're giving him a complete game, if you're literally calling it a complete game of baseball, you have to give him the no hitter. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I mean, let's talk about some some bigger picture stuff. And uh, one thing that kind of struck me is I just started counting. I was looking at the standings and started counting. Uh, and this was, I haven't counted today, but I counted yesterday. And uh, when we when we woke up yesterday morning, uh, 19 of 30 teams were uh, within three games of 500, plus or minus. Um, and have we reached, I, I just, I, you know, I'm not a football fan, but I remember a few decades ago, the NFL being obsessed with parody and that we reached a weird parody thing with baseball all of a sudden. I think the 30 games, you're, it, it can be a little fluky. I've never had a problem with baseball's competitive balance, although the last two years, uh, Rob Maines has done some research. They're the two least balanced seasons since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So this is probably a fluke. I think if you look at the the baseline talent of some of the teams that are in this group of 500, I, I don't think we're going to see the, the Rangers hang around, fi- around 500. I don't think we're going to see the Orioles hang, around, or hang out around 500. I think the situation at the top's more interesting, though. I mean... 
injuries are such a big part of this story so far this year. And yeah. I think that's dragging some of these teams at the top. I think we're seeing the lack of depth in some of these rosters get exposed. I mean, the Yankees, we saw talk about them going in. They didn't really do a whole lot. They, they took their chances on Tyone and Kluber at the back of the rotation as opposed to going out and getting a capital T number two starter. Um, I think the best teams in baseball might not be as good as they were in recent years. I want to ask you, where do you, where, do you think the Dodgers are, the, are a fluke because they've had to play a bunch of extra inning games, or do you actually think this is a team that might only win 90-95 games? Uh, you know, right now, they're they're 17-15. and 15. I would still bet they threaten 100. It's, it's just it's the best roster in baseball. I think I think they've hit a, a rough stretch. I, like you said, the extra inning stuff isn't helping. I, I think, and they've obviously had some injuries, um, especially you know the May one's going to kill them. But they have depth. I just if, if I was the Dodger, I'd be sitting there going, "We're fine. This is, a, this is a rough stretch, and there's nothing to panic about." That's pretty much where I am. I just was was curious what you, what you thought. Yeah, and that, you know, but to go back to the, like you know it, we we woke up this morning with the the Phillies in first place in the National League East at sixteen and fifteen, and nobody else at five hundred. Um, and it just feels like, and I, I wrote this this week, like every team in that division has been handed a gift and, and refused it. Um, you know, if any of those teams got off to a decent start, they'd have a nice little buffer already. Yeah, you'd be up five five games and looking back. And you, you also look at the Central. The Central's got three teams at 16 and 13. I, I'll be honest with you, baseball needs a good season. We obviously had the difficult year last year. Who knows mm-hmm. what we're going to get next year. I think the best thing for the league would be if it's this chaotic thing where nobody really pushes out to 95 or 100 wins. And we hit September 1st, and 21 teams still have a possible, still have a chance at, the, at a, a postseason berth. Now, I like greatness. I like when the Rays win two out of every three games. I like when the Dodgers, who I said at the start of the year, could, could win 117 games. I, I want to watch that, but I also think that you can bring in a lot of people if you have this just cluster Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we get a year like that, I think it could be positive for the game. I think if it gets a lot of people excited, I think it's overrated. Competitive balance is largely kind of a code for we want to pay the, the players make too much money. I've said this for years. <laughs> when, when the league talks about parity, it really is saying how do we keep teams from investing too much in talent? But pulling it aside from labor stuff, a year where there's these kinds of races that we're talking about, look at the settings today, you know, even if give us four of them. Um, I think that would help keep baseball on the front pages as we go into September and October. And, you know, that's been baseball's problem the last 20 years. It's just football sucks yeah. up all the oxygen. And, and obviously I, I live in the Chicago media market. And, and when I try to explain like what the Bears mean to the Chicago media market, um, you know, when the White Sox were in the playoffs, they played a, a playoff, a baseball playoff game on a Sunday and Monday morning in the sports section of the Tribune. They were below the fold. The, the Bears game was at the top of the fold. Like, and it was like, you know, just some random whatever. The Bears beat the Falcons. and But then the, and the White Sox playoff game was on the second half. Um, you said baseball needs a good season. What do you mean by that? Well, last year, you know, last year's the write-off for a lot of, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, nobody in the stands. A shortened season. Uh, you know, obviously the NFL issue that always comes up. So baseball didn't really have a, a much runway before the NFL took over in late August. I think that there's concern about what we're going to get next year. Um, I know, I believe you talked with, I think it was Stephanie, you know, did percentages on what you think, um, the percentage that we'll have a, a full season next year. Yeah. And that's going to hang over the entire winter. And, you know, maybe we get 162 games, maybe we don't. So this is baseball's, like, only chance to squeeze out a full, exciting season, possibly in a three-year stretch. Would you say it's been a good season so far? 
I'm too close to it. There are things I've enjoyed. We all enjoyed watching the Dodgers-Padres. We've had four no-hitters. We have the best player in baseball going ham. We have somebody who we thought might be the best player in baseball to, uh, in Byron Buxton going ham. I mean, there are a lot of great stories out there. Yeah. But it's hard for me to separate that from, okay, the strikeout rate is a little too close to the league OBP for my taste. Um, you know, there have been so many injuries. Um, I know you're not a fantasy player. I'm not a good fantasy player. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just not enjoyable when they're just con- literally day after day there's somebody else getting hurt. And right. Is he in the lineup? Is he not in the lineup? Is he going on the DL? Is he not going to the DL? You know, I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about baseball from a 10,000-foot level and the strikeouts are kind of dominating that thought. We, of course, we've had all these meta-conversations about rules changes in the minors and potential rules changes in the majors. You and I also disagree on the extra inning rule. We don't have to go into that today, but that, comes up, that comes up every single day. Sure. So... I'm trying to focus on the things I've enjoyed. I'm, look, for the first couple of weeks, it was just, I'm watching baseball in April. Yeah. That was a thrill. Like, oh, there's a, there's 14 games tonight. This is what I I love, the everydayness of baseball. I love the fact that, you know, it's funny, we're talking today, there's only two night games today, but give me that Tuesday night where there are 15 games and I'm going to watch baseball from 6.30 to 1.30. I'm, I'm all in for that. How do you, how do you watch baseball? Like, what, what, like what's, what's your, said? I mean, it, it is, let's call it one of those nights where it's, you know, you do have 12, 13 night games. Are you how 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 are you watching? Like, what are you choosing to watch? How do you do it? I, I've told people before. Like, I I fire up. Um, and this is for the first, I mean, this is weird for me. It's the first time in nine years. It's not like while well, I'm watching the Astros game, right? Um, it's it's but I fire up MLB TV on an Apple TV. I see the scores, but I also see the game situation. I go, wait, you know, who's got stress? Oh, look at that game. They're the you know the Tigers have two on and one out against Boston. I'm flipping to that. And then when that's over, I go back to the menu and go, oh, the Phillies got second and third with two outs. I'm going to go see what's, you know, and that's how I kind of run my own red channel, if you will. How do you do it? Almost exactly like that. I've got the cable package in addition to MLB.tv. So I've got that on the 1400 channels and I'm bopping around. Um, I've got an iPad that has the scoreboard up, the MLB uh, app scoreboard up. And I'll basically use that to guide me around. And then if I need another screen, I can use the iPad itself, I can use my iPhone. Um, I would say I probably have two games going on a screen for, you know, 40% of the time. But it's the same thing. I'm looking for situations, and some nights I'm not. Um, there are some starters you really just want to catch. DeGrom, Cole, that that category of starters. Right, right. Or if and it's like, somebody... Go ahead, sorry. No, I'm saying when you talked about like the, the Dodgers-Padres series, like, yeah, I'm just going to watch that. Right. Um, the structure, the way I do it, actually, and I'm conscious of this now. I don't see enough of the central teams because I'll start watching baseball at, you know, well, some teams play at 6:40 now, but we'll call it seven o'clock with the East Coast teams. Mm-hmm. I'll watch those games and then I'll basically jump to the West Coast games because there are so many attractive teams out west: Dodgers, Padres, Angels with Trout. They used to have Simmons, and of course, I mean the storylines there: Otani. And I find that I'm not seeing enough of the Brewers. I'm not seeing enough of the Reds. I'm not seeing enough of the White Sox and Royals. So I'm trying to be conscious of that now and make sure I catch more of those teams. But I'm very much a flipper. I think probably my favorite days are rainy days here in New York where there's a spread schedule, like a Wednesday, where you've got games mm-hmm. all day. Because then I don't feel guilty about sitting at home and watching 10 hours of baseball because it's raining outside. Right. Um, and then I'm seeing more baseball because the games are more spread out. I, I, what I don't do is you know, I'll watch quick pitch in the morning um, and that'll kind of catch me up on some stuff, but yeah, I'm, I'm a flipper for the most part. I, I like just jumping in and 
Baseball through a fire hose, man. I, I love it. And uh, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, must-watch TV with the Dodgers and the Padres and, and this week's must-watch series for different reasons in some ways, um, even though it's two very good baseball teams, is, is Astros at Yankees for the first time since the, the revelation of the scandal. Um, it's been, a, you know, I, I know people, it's been a fun environment. I think they've been fun to watch. And I think the environment's helped make those games more entertaining. I think Yankee fans and Dodger fans are probably the two fan groups that have the biggest gripe, you know, with the, with what happened sure. in 2017. I also don't think it's great for baseball that we're still talking about something that happened in 2017. Baseball's not very good at burying its its problems. I don't like, know how happen- you make it. Go- I don't know how you make that one go well, away. I mean, well, the NFL. If somebody, you know, if if an NFL player does something really bad on Tuesday at two o'clock, you're basically banned from talking about it after five o'clock. Mm. NFL is much better at just burying all this stuff, but I will say that the you use the word fun. I, I think it's been more um, positive. Is not the word I'm looking for. It hasn't been as nasty as I thought it was going to be. And I think maybe if it had happened last year, there would have been a little more undercurrent of nastiness to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's certainly you know it, it, it's it's been somewhat. I'm somebody who doesn't. <laughs> I never had the. I never raged about what the Astros did. Mm-hmm. The way some other people did, I, I, I think team baseball players and baseball teams have cheated for 150 years, and this is just part of the continuum. I don't really separate it from everything that had happened before and everything that's going to happen since. I just, it didn't bother me the way it bothered some other people. So I look at the reactions and like, okay, yeah, whatever. And and obviously the Yankees won the first two. Um, as we talk right now, they're up three to one in the six. They might sweep. Uh, there was all sorts. Of, you you live in New York. You 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 go to Yankees games. There was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth maybe two weeks ago. Um, and I, I had a chat and someone said, what are they going to do about the Yankees? And I said, the Yankees will be over 503 weeks. And that person said, if that's true, I'll, I'll support fan graphs. And I got to find out that person's email. So <laughs> you know, take care. But it's, it's the Yankees are fine. Like I, it, this, this team I think is still, a, it's not a great team, but it's a really good team that I think still should win the division. Do you, do you still see them that way? Uh, I actually had the Rays winning the division, but I had the Yankees comfortably winning the first wild card. Uh, I think the Rays are that good, uh, and they've also they're another team that's just been devastated with all these pitching injuries. Um, you know, eventually I think soon enough we'll see Juan or Franco come up and and really kind of try to rescue that uh, lineup. Um, but I don't think the Yankees are a problem. I think the Yankees will spend much of September lining up their rotation for that wild card game, probably against the Twins, uh, <laughs> and uh, they'll win that game and move on. Uh, but I never. I mean, when they were five and ten, I. I I posted something actually. I said, you know, pretty much every team that's won a World Series in the last, however far I went back, is at a five and ten stretch. Right. They just and, started that way. Right. And they're they're eleven and four, possibly twelve and four since. Um, Cole going today, and you know, talk about not getting a lot of attention. I mean, Degrom, Burns, the guys throwing no hitters have gotten all the attention. Garrett Cole is just going out there and stealing souls, and not getting any attention for it at all. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Um, having seen that up close, it's it's the it's it's. You know, it, we, we, you get gifts on Twitter of Jake DeGromps. He's throwing, you know, 93 mile an hour sliders. Um, you know, Garrett Cole doesn't have a single pitch that's like the best pitch of its type. He just has two or three plus plus offerings and plus plus command. And, and I don't think it's appreciated enough. And the command is the thing that really, cut to me, ties it all together when you can throw them all for strikes or, if you prefer to, not throw them all for strikes. It's, yeah, which it's is really important, something to watch. It's a really important thing to be able to do. And, and, and we don't, we've gotten, I was talking to someone else about this um, yesterday. Like, we've gotten to this weird point where we're so obsessed with pitch data, and we should be. Um, but, like, we forget about location. 
Like, it's just, what was the spin rate in the velo on this pitch? I'm like, that's great. Was it good? You know, and it's, it's, it's something that I think we need, to, you know, as, as, as if you're an analyst of pitcher performance, I think you need to kind of back off that kind of data and start focusing on both sequencing and command. Cause I don't think enough people are doing that. Oh, I think, and, and I don't, I know this is going to come out like I'm, I'm, I'm bashing, you know, pitching ninja, or the or Robin. I'm not, I love those videos. Oh, it's great. It's a load of fun, but it's also disconnected from any context. I remember, I think it was Lance McCullers' first or second start. There was a, a gift that came through, and he's doing some ridiculous things with a baseball. And you look, and it's three and two-thirds innings, four hits, three runs. Right, exactly. Three walks, three strikeouts. Yeah. Um, I'm having this issue with Otani right now. Otani is, is a whole awful lot of fun to watch, but he's walking 23% of the batters he faced. Mm-hmm. There is no good pitcher in history that's done that. So we're evaluating pitchers. It's kind of the reverse of where we were 20 years ago, where we wanted to evaluate through the stat line. Well, this guy's got a great strikeout-to-walk ratio, and you end up saying Dave Bush is going to win the Sayang Award. It never happens. Now we've gone the other way, where we can see and measure the raw pitching skill, but we're forgetting to connect that to actual performance. Run prevention is still the be-all, end-all here. Mm-hmm. And we got to... I know I'm personally trying to say, okay, let me stop looking agog at these you know, 12 to 6 breakers and you know, this incredible velocity and actually say, who's actually a good pitcher? I've got to do a better job as an analyst of, of not getting distracted by the shiny objects. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. And, and, and it's, it's, that's great that he threw that amazing pitch. And it was an amazing pitch, but he had to throw 105 pitches today. And, and how, did they, how did they function as a whole is, is kind of what I think we're missing out on sometimes. Um, there was another little news item out of the East that I kind of wanted to discuss, the, the, the American League East, that is, since we do have the East Coast biased on this show, um, which is the, the I almost don't even want to call them the Toronto Blue Jays. We'll just call them the Blue Jays, um, who obviously have been playing in Dunedin, and now there's a cat, and are now moving to Buffalo um, and haven't played in Toronto for well over a year now. Um, do you think this is an, they have, there's an adverse effect of them never playing in Toronto? I do. It actually, I mean, a manual adjustment to the Blue Jays at the start of the year when I was doing my projections, predict projections, because of that. I, I don't think. What players, was the adjustment? What was about like three mathematically? games. It was about okay. three games. Um, uh, because you're just ne- you're never home. You don't have a home. It's the the Vlad Guerrero traveling all stars, uh, and I think that's I think the people in Buffalo are very happy to have the Blue Jays back, and I think they'll welcome them to the best that they can, but. There's yeah, something about having there. there's something about playing the whole year in minor league parks. In I I don't know what the specifics of their living arrangements are, but nobody's buying a house and moving their family to Buffalo. Right. It's, I, it's you don't have a home for six months. That can't yeah. that that has to pile up eventually. And it's funny because I you know when you think about that comfort level, I actually I understand why they're moving to Buffalo, but I actually think you know just in terms of of like soft science, just pure. Um, look, comfortable baseball players play better. That's just a fact. I, I think just like in terms of pure comfort, Deneen's actually better for them because they, they, you know, that, that's their facility every year. They know the area. You know, you know the, the players who are making big money are renting nice houses there and just extending their temporary rental for a month. You know what I mean? They, they have a comfort and they kind of know what that is. And Buffalo's a little more foreign to them and, and really does kind of feel like they're on the road, I bet. Right, it's closer to home, but it's still not. But it's not home. I, I didn't even think about the fact that these guys are in Dunedin for six, seven weeks anyway. Mm-hmm. So it, it is just kind of exciting. I know a lot of players move their families now to spring training because it is seven weeks long. And yeah, they're getting early eight weeks. Um, I guess it's just a weather thing, right? That's why they're moving. 
Yeah, I don't. And I, th- I think Buffalo is is a you know we look we live in capitalism. I think Buffalo is a place where you can draw a bigger crowd and make a little more money. Okay. Um, and I think that's a huge part of it as well. But like in terms of you know almost any player, even the players making minimum, minimum still a lot of money by our standards. Um, they they all find you know they, there's there's people whose entire jobs revolve around spring training and finding ho- finding houses for rich people. Um, and there's plenty of nice houses in that area, and, and the players just rent a really nice house and bring their whole family in. All, all of them do. It's just to me, it's it's going to create some stress over time, and you know the uncertainty too. Like they're going to to Buffalo. Do we have an idea of when Toronto's going to let them come back? No, there's no real clarity from from the Canadian government as far as when they're going to start allowing things. And 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 my understanding, I don't know if it's still the case. Like uh, you know, about a month ago, there was you know, Toronto was having a problem. They're starting to go backwards. Um, so I don't think there is any sort of clarity as if this is. This there are certainly it's there's certainly a non-zero chance that they don't play in Toronto this year. That'd be really be something a two years without playing, you know, a ball game in that park, and not that that park's anything. But do you start? Do you think there's a medium-term effect on the fan base there? You people just get used to not going to Toronto Blue Jays games. I don't think so. I think there are other towns where that would be the case, but like the Blue Jays are, you know, very much so. You know, especially since Montreal left. Um, I mean, they are the Canada Blue Jays. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, the whole the whole country roots for the Blue Jays. I just don't think it's enough to really. I I, I think they'll be welcomed back with open arms. I don't think it's going to kind of hurt their footprint there. I think it'll help if they bring this team back. I mean, this is a a, it's a fun, fun to team watch. to watch. Yeah, yep. it's a lot of it's, it's it's you know obviously it's it's been great to see Vladimir Guerrero kind of turn to the player a lot of people thought he would be that that wasn't there for a while. Um, you know, Bichette's fun. Biggio's kind of low-key fun. Um, Lourdes Gurriel's fun. Uh, Tioscar is fun and, and just... Kirk uh, is hurt, but he's a ton of fun. Literally. Em- emphasis on a ton. Um, <laughs> I don't get when, to make those jokes. Yeah, when I was with the Astros, um, we tried to get him a couple times for a while, like even when he was in the low A, just because like everything just screamed, this guy can hit. Um, lot of, yeah, he's... Fun to watch, and I always root for Tioscar. I, you know, I, obviously, I was with the Astros when they traded Tioscar, and and I thought they were trading a fourth outfielder away, and he's exceeded expectations. But, um, like one of the nicest players I ever dealt with. Like I, this, I, I cried when he hit his home first home run. I was like, I was just so happy for him. Um, oh, I'm great. Let's stay in New York. The Mets uh, are, are still <laughs> are still struggling, um, and the Mets uh, did a. Thing, it's, it's kind of disappointing. Like, obviously, it's a new administration, new ownership. And I think during some of the, you know, LOL, Mets got a Mets years, the one thing that I think smart people would say is, like, I know you're mad at the at the baseball people here, but the one constant is the owners um, or the Wilpons. And, and they're not there anymore. There's a new owner. And, um, you know, obviously, they've been scuffling and, and Lindor's not hitting. And he's obviously not the only one not hitting. And the Mets fired their hitting coaches, which happens not usually this early but it happens and but they did it in such a weird Mets way where they it just happened it was like a late night release and you know players are finding out on Twitter which is completely unacceptable um you know just not just on the PR thing um you know and and, and the, the you know, new GM talks about how you know these guys weren't necessarily aligned with some of the analytics some of the things they want to do and you're just like well then why don't you start the year with these guys yeah well what was the hiring process that led you to Chili Davis 
if you wanted to have an analytically oriented, because I look at Davis and the problems the Mets are having this year, not hitting for power, really seem, didn't we see this in Chicago where you had a good offensive team that suddenly stopped hitting for power? Yeah, and, and Chili Davis has you know, lost jobs in, in Chicago and Boston because he yep. wasn't an analytic-based hitting right. coach. He was more of an old-school hitting coach. So if you wanted an analytic-based hitting coach, why did you start the year with Chili Davis? That's that's the better question than why did you fire him? It's like what just and do almost do you not almost say maybe they're it's smarter to recognize you made a mistake mm-hmm. and get as opposed to carrying them all season long? Right, just uh, just you bite the bullet and do what you need to do in order to, to start the year right with a new administration. If it wasn't um, the Mets, would we be focused on the process? Um, I think if it went off like this, where you know, like like I said, we get like players finding out about it on Twitter and yeah, like that's... I. I, I I, I do think there'd be talk about. Obviously, things get a little more, um, I don't know, focused on because it's the Mets and 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 it's you know it's a big media market, but it, it's still a weird one. Um, you always kind of consider yourself, and I think proudly, and I kind of like the brand as kind of you know a baseball outsider. Period, and I'm not going to try not to be. Um, like, do you think from your angle, do hitting coaches matter? I think they matter more than they used to. There are more of them than they used to be. Um, for a long time, those positions were largely you know, drinking buddies of the manager. I don't think that's anywhere near the case anymore. I think the organization is taking a greater hand in filling those roles. That's my perception, again, from the outside. And there's a maybe a little more professionalism in, expected out of those roles. And again, you know, some of these teams have multiple hitting coaches. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest difference, though, is that you know, guys don't need a uniformed hitting coach, I think, as much as they used to, because they're getting it from their outside hitting instructor. So, you know, some percentage of players are just, I got my guy, I've got my particular hitting style. I think the explosion of outside advisors is probably the, the biggest change, you know, in the 25 years I've been doing this. Yeah, and it, it, and those guys get in the way, <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, I, I, don't, I don't doubt that there's a conflict. I don't know... I think at the individual level, sometimes they're going to help, sometimes they're going to hurt. But if you're a team executive, if you're a manager, if you're a GM, I, I think it would create a problem. And who, who, you know, I'm paying this guy. He's got to listen to my people. Um, if you know, there's going to be, I guess, a power struggle, you're closer to this than I am. But I would imagine that occasionally you do get some conflicts, no? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, and every team has their own different thing. And all of a sudden you're having trouble with player X and you want him to do this and he's got some dude who has nothing to do with the organization telling him to do Y and it just becomes a, it, it definitely becomes a problem. It's not as frequent as pitching. And I think pitching coaches actually have a larger influence than hitting coaches, but it does become a real issue with some of the people going to these outside gurus at times. Um, some of whom are good and some of whom are, are really good and some of whom are awful. But you probably um, don't know until... <laughs> Yeah, you know, it takes a long time to figure out who actually is good and is. I thought one of the best parts about the MVP machine by uh, by Lindbergh and Sawchick was it kind of introduced me to this whole class of hitting coaches that didn't exist, you know, ten, twelve years ago. Um, but I actually, I'll be honest, with you, reading the book, I didn't think in terms of the impact that would have on the employed, you know, the the in, inside hitting coaches. So mm-hmm. there's your book idea. Oh God, I don't know. I, don't know. I, I I've had a couple of people approach me about book stuff, and I just don't think it's in me. I have enough trouble pushing out a thousand words a day. Just do it eighty times. <laughs> exactly. Is that, is that what a book is? Eighty thousand words. I've had people. I don't know. Say I said someone said a hundred thousand once. And I was just like, and the second they said that, I was like, yeah, I'm out. It's one hundred and twenty, and they take out the forty good ones and publish the rest. <laughs> um, have you ever thought about a book? On and off. Um, I'm, I'm the same way. I think in 
thousand, two thousand word blocks, and I can't imagine what you say. Okay, write one hundred twenty thousand words. I blanch, but then again, I get to the end of October every year, and I've written forty thousand words. So it's like, oh well, <laughs> right. I guess maybe I could do this. Um, yeah, a lot exactly. of it is the idea. I remember a thousand years ago when I was still with Prospectus, working with um, Sidel Kramer, and mm-hmm. I had an idea, and it was basically I wanted to basically find the next you know team to write about. And I pitched it to her, and she's like, well, you know, it really needs to be kind of Yankees, Red Sox, Cubs, and it wasn't mm-hmm. one of those teams, and, which is fair. I mean, I, yeah. you, you want to write a book that sells. And then I had a, I actually had a, worked at a, after I left Prospectus, I was going to go back and do kind of like a Bill Simmons, Now I uh, Now I Can Die in Peace, where I was going to take a lot of my old columns and then write around them. And that I've, that's that project is still on my hard drive, kind of 40% done. Oh, interesting. Um, but I've never, you know... When I think about actually sitting down and doing 80 to 100, I mean, just, I don't know. Plus, the juice isn't really worth the squeeze. I mean, if somebody wants to talk to me and write me a check, that's one thing. Right, you know, especially advance, these but days. For book publishing, I, I really just soon put that 80 to 120,000 words into the newsletter or you know whatever else I might be doing. And don't get me wrong, man. I, people I know have written some of my, you know, the, the two books Keith Law has done. Jay Jaffe's Cooperstown Casebook, I can see it from here. Um, and yeah, various other people have written these fantastic books and. I God bless him, but I just I don't think it's for me. Um, we're gonna go west. We're not. We're gonna get out of the east for a second. We're gonna finish up in the west to Jersey. Um, to <laughs> we're gonna go to Philly. Um, no. It, it, so the the National League West standings as we wake up this morning, we knew the Dodgers and the and the Padres would be at the top. We're right about that. But all of a sudden, right there with them is the San Francisco Giants. Are you buying at all? Not really. Not least because I don't think they should be buying. Um, a lot of this early season, it's real. You know, sometimes teams are 18 and 13 with a minus four run differential. But you actually dig in, and you know they've deserved what they've gotten. It's great. They're defensive. plus 30 right now. Yeah, it, the, the defense has been great. I I haven't updated this. I wrote about them on Tuesday. So mm-hmm. they just played three games in Colorado. I'm sure these these numbers are a mess. But they were you know 3.2 runs a game allowed. Uh, the best defensive efficiency in baseball. Some of the best contact in baseball. They've allowed. They're allowing some of the weakest contact in baseball. Again. Don't hold me to this. They just played in Colorado. Um, but right. I, I look at the talent base, and I'm just like, I'm not seeing it. Uh, I, I hear you, but I think they're kind of sneaky good, and I think it is, and, and to no surprise, it's a bit of, because it's you know Farhan's running the team where Farhan came from, it's a bit of an A's model where they've, they've found pitchers with good attributes, and they're maximizing those attributes. And then they have these, I guess if you look at the lineup and you go, eh, but it's a lot of platoon guys. Like, it's a lot of guys where, like, this guy might not be good, but if you just look what he does against lefties, he's kind of really good, and, and or righties. And I think, I think it's a sneaky good team. I don't think they're going to they're gonna hang, but I do think it's a sneaky good team. Well, I think it's, you know, last year I think they were 28 and 23 with a week to go, and they finished yeah. 29 and 31. Like, I think this is a team that's going to be interesting for two months and then kind of sunset, largely because I don't see the pitching depth, and I don't trust the, the guys they have right now to get through a season. I mean, Aaron Sanchez is going to give you 160 innings. Yeah, he's not, but he's got good stuff. Right, um, and it's it's a yeah. lot of guys like that. It's you know, Johnny you know, Cueto's on the DL at the moment. Um, you know, Anthony DiSclafani's never really been a volume guy. I, again, I think it's three good months of baseball, and that's why I think they're fascinating because I think everybody we've mentioned in this conversation so far is a free agent at the end of the year. Like their yeah. whole team goes away, and are, are they really better off trying to squeeze a winner out of this or putting Gaussman? Disco, Sanchez, um, 
there was a hitter I'm blanking on. Like, well, you're not going to trade Belton Crawford in all likelihood, but you know, just try to convert all this because all of a sudden that's a good farm system. I mean, you're you're the prospect guy. I mean, what are they now? Top ten? It's 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 close to it. If it's not, and they got some really exciting young players, but it's you know, if they if they do fall behind a little bit, I I mean, I actually think they do have to trade Brandon Crawford. You got to turn it into something, and and teams will be lining up obviously for Kevin Gossman, who's been unreal so far this year i mean if, if the nationals stay where they are he could be the number one pitching pro you know pitching target for other teams um but i i think they're interesting i think they're just doing i just kind of look at what they're doing and i'm like man they've done a really good job that's the kind of, it's one of those teams where i look at like they're just they're doing a very good job at what they're doing well I, I think it speaks well to what they can get back to in a few years so we know that when they actually really do have that championship caliber core again with Ramos and Luciano and Bailey and future number one draft picks coming along here, there we know that this is a front office that can put that next tier of guys around them. You know, find those one to three win players that mean that you just don't really have a whole lot of holes. I mean, you look at the depth of the, be- the two teams in the World Series last year, the Rays and Dodgers. Those were 27, 28, 29-man uh, rosters, basically. Right. And I think that's where the game is going. And I, I, I love that aspect of what we've seen Zaidi's front office do in the three years he's been there. And also, they show, I mean, they are the San Francisco Giants. They, they, they have the resources to make right. a, a bigger splash if they, if they feel like it would be valuable to them to do so. No question. This is a team that typically, they were actually, they paid the luck. They're one of the few teams outside. They of went the, over the cap. They're, yeah. over the, they're over the tax threshold. So um, in that park, people will fill that park. It is still one of the, the jewels in the game. They got a good broadcast deal. I mean, the money's going to be there. So, right. you know, the Dodgers are going to run this division for a little while. But I think you start to look at 23-24. And that's where, where I think, I think going all out for 21 to possibly win 85 games and miss the wild card by two is less a play for them than just trying to make those 24, 25, 26 teams as good as possible. Right. Um, so on that, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll go to Tokyo, Japan, which is all just very exciting. And, another and big market. Another another very big market. We'll talk to, to Murray Johnson about the upcoming May Sumo Tournament, which begins this weekend. Are you a big Terano Fuji fan, Joe? Oh, huh, what? <laughs> And then we'll come back, talk about our musical guest, uh, go through some emails, catch up with the, the life of Joe. Moment of culture will be done. So stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, just a, a, a huge thanks. It's one of those things where, you know, and I, this does apply a little bit to baseball. Like, some, and I, we talked about this last week with, with Stephanie. Like, people go, oh, how do, how do you end up making contacts? And how do you call people? And, like, just call them and reach out. And sometimes they'll answer you and you'll be surprised. And, like, I was like, I'd love to get someone to talk about the sumo thing. I don't know any of these guys. And I just found the, 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 the commentators from NHK and I contacted them and Murray responded. You know, That's sometimes, great. Sometimes it's that simple. I love I love how much you love sumo. Um, the older I get, the more I get into other people's geekery. Not not that I'm into sumo, but I I get off on you being that into it. I um, I think it's good to be into like one thing that doesn't matter at all. Right. Um, there are people. I have a, a newsletter Slack, and there are people on there who are into beer and Legos and yeah. music I've never heard of. And it just the way they get excited about it energizes me i absolutely love that you know my daughter loves this one video game um and she just was going on and on about it one day and it just what game among us uh-huh. i'm saying it right sure. yeah, I, I'm, I'm and i had no idea i mean i was literally just trying to follow along but the the enthusiasm she had for it was infectious and that's a, whatever your thing is man just go for it for me yeah. for years it was stratomatic do you do uh, out of the park or anything like that? No, one of the, and I'll be honest. One of the reasons I don't do out of the park is because I feel like I'd never leave the house again. My understanding <laughs> is that it is that good a game. The people I've, who have played it just tell me, "Oh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it." I'm like, "That's why I got to stay away from it." Yeah, I have a I have a copy and I, I've messed with it a little bit and it's uh it is good. It's interesting. Uh, well, you're not a, a sports gamer it, though, right? It's almost. I don't play any sports video games like ones that require. Once we're like, you know, I'm, I I like a sim, but like I don't do any sports games where like I have to hit X to hit the ball or got it, pitch, got it, you know, got pitch the ball, like that kind of thing. I, I, I really don't. Have I also like video games are more of an escape for me and I don't want to do sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but speaking of music you've never heard of, our musical guest this week that you've been listening to is Nice Ghost. Nice Ghost is uh, the name of a band, but in reality, it's just one person named Tyler who's a, a DIY artist from Cambridge Springs, Pennsylvania, now lives in Los Angeles. Uh, this is fun stuff. It, it's, he used to be a punk rocker. Now it's a little more ethereal, if you will. But he writes and records everything himself and plays all the instruments. Talk about uh, intense geekery. This guy is, is, is everything's going uh, by himself. So every every single note you hear, everything you're sung is all just Tyler. And, and I think those are always interesting artists. Um, you're listening to songs from his first full release, Digital. And if you like what you hear, you can go check him out at niceghostmusic.com. And thanks to Tyler and Nice Ghost, I guess that's the same thing, uh, for letting us play his music on the podcast. That's fantastic ready? stuff. Yeah, he's great. I, 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 I you know, it, uh, it was a big part of the last podcast. It's going to be a big part of, of this podcast is being able to play independent musicians. It's a, it's a good time. I think it makes for a fun part of the show as well. Um, ready for emails? Um, email us. We read them all. We answer some. It's chinmusic at fangraphs.com. And this is always my time where I remind you that if you are an Apple person, um, A, we fixed the Apple feed, I think. We had some technical issues that weren't our fault. They were Apple's fault because they changed their platform. Um, but rate and review us. It matters. I can't explain why, but it does. Uh, our first email comes from Chad. And Chad says, with the recent elimination of many minor league teams and leagues, it appears that some players have been given more aggressive assignments at higher levels than what teams would have done in the past. Do you agree? And if so, do you think that more players may struggle with the aggressive assignments? And could this create a problem with more players failing or should some teams have been more aggressive like this in the past? I have a, I have a, a grand theory about this, Joe, which is if you look at 
minor league assignments. I can understand going, oh man, that's aggressive. Oh, here, oh, they're skipping him a level and all that kind of thing. But if you're, if all of a sudden, and some of this is a function of us having no short season, some of this is a function of uh, us not having a minor league season at all in 2020. But if a league, if you look at league rosters and you can identify 120 players who seem to have aggressive assignments, in reality, no one's gotten an aggressive assignment. It's just the the quality of that league has rebalanced. Plus, we're probably going to see a lot of uh, ex post facto reasoning where, you know, if a player gets, gets pushed up two levels and you think it's an aggressive assignment, he doesn't play well, it's going to be, well, they pushed him up too far. Well, really, it could be he didn't get to play baseball last year. I think it's going to be very hard to tease out the missed season and the lack of development from the condensing of the minor leagues, from the you know, aggressive promotions some guys might get. I, I want to be really careful this year about drawing any grand conclusions from from what we see, it's certainly at the major league level, but also at the minor league level. Yeah, for sure. But I, and, and it just it feels like, you know, I understand he's scuffling, but he's playing with 100 other kids who are probably mm-hmm. a level higher than you'd expect. And it just gets into a weird spot where it's, it's it, I, I think what you're, we're going to see, and it'll take a while for us to really be able to, I, I don't want to use the word when you say it, to measure it. Um, but we're just kind of thinking like you need to recalibrate yourself as far as what the talent level at low and high A are now because they're going to be different because the way teams are going to use those levels to, to develop talent. In, in what way are they going to be different? Um, you're just going to see like the, I think the level of talent at low and higher is going to be lower than what it used to be because, you know, of these, these quote unquote aggressive assignments, they're not really aggressive if everyone's getting pushed to those levels. You know, if 100 kids who normally wouldn't be ready for low A are now in low A, those aren't aggressive assignments. It's just changed the level of talent at low A overall. And it's going to take a little while, I think. I mean, I would, I'm talking about multiple seasons to really get a sense oh, yeah. of that, right? It's going to take, I think, three to five years to really get a sense of that. And I also think it might take longer than that in the sense that it's going to be, we're going to be in a weird world where I think it could change and, and teams are going to be um, experimenting and or adjusting as we go to try to figure out how they want to live in a world with no short season baseball. I thought I saw somebody on Twitter, maybe it was JJ Cooper reporting that a manager in the complex league, they actually have too many players to go around in some of these places. Yes. They're packed. See, I thought one of the reasons I, and I supported the restructuring of the minor leagues. and I know I'm very much in the minority on this, but I thought in doing so it would basically teams would have fewer players under control. And that does not seem to have been the case. They do, but there is a cap now, but the cap is high. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, teams are sitting around with, uh, 60 players or so at their complexes. That's too many. More than two teams. Um, so you have, you know, you got a, basically you have a hundred players playing right now, right? You have your four full seasons, you have a hundred players. Um, uh, and then you have, most teams have a hundred more split between their complex here and their complex in the DR. Um, and so they have about, you know, two, they have two plus teams in, Florida, Arizona, and nearly two teams in the DR. And I felt like I thought that we would see teams now only control maybe 140, 150 players. And to me, I thought that would be a, a big picture, good thing. Um, I'd like to see independent ball come out. I think you'll have a. I thought you would get a better quality of play across the minor leagues, the affiliated minors, if you kind of sloughed off the bottom 1,800 players. I'm surprised to some extent that we still have teams controlling that many players even after the restructuring. There are plenty of teams who in previous years had well over 200 players in their system. Well over. Closer to three even. You know, some of those teams had six, seven affiliates and a couple DSL teams. Um, I guess the idea is the more players you have, the more Right. The more players you could possibly produce, but yeah, I mean, buy, like, an, buy, buy another be, lottery ticket. Yeah. 
there should be a top down. I don't know, probably too much for the for this particular podcast. And I know, <laughs> as a player development guy, you want as many players as you get your hands on, but. Yeah, for the most part. And it'll be interesting to see how this works. Obviously, the draft's only 20 rounds. I, I do think in a CBA, in the next CBA, I, we're never going to see a 40-round draft again. Um, I think the next draft, the drafts from here on out will be somewhere between 20 and 30. Um, and so that's going to be cutting off those opportunities. But you do, you do have these weird development leagues and the weird kind of MLB-sponsored indie ball leagues and things like that. Um, how, just, many, think, how many international guys do you sign a year? Um. 15 to 25. Okay, so it's, it's basically like a ha- half a draft, or now a full draft. Right, yeah. All right. I just was um, never quite sure. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's you know, four to six real checks, and uh, eight to ten, like $10,000 guys. You know, or, you know, ten to $50,000 guys, and, and, and six guys who are, you know, you're more competitive about or are, are giving real money to. Got it. Somewhere in there. Um, our next email comes from Mike. Mike says, in terms of employee amenities for the average employee, let's say accountant, admin, HR, whatever, is any team known for having particularly great cafeteria or other perks that stand out? Um, there's all sorts of perks, uh, even for the average employee. Uh, there is, most teams do have a cafeteria. Most teams do feed their employees, um, in one way or another, especially on game days. They're allowed in media dining. Some are, uh, you know, and can go get their food before the game. Uh, you can get seats to games. Uh, if you make the playoffs, uh, most teams will put pretty much everyone on a jet and fly them around. Um, so, you know, usually, you know, the whole, the whole organization, you know, everyone, ticket sales, marketing, HR, the whole thing are traveling and going to your postseason games on the road, uh, which is a nice perk. Um, so yeah, the perks are nice. I think the one perk that I don't think people maybe appreciate enough, um, or yet it never gets talked about really is just the, um, yeah, it's shitty that we need this in this world, but it's, it's the health insurance because it's, um, you know, companies can't offer different health insurance to different employees. It's a, it's a, so you get the health insurance everybody else gets, and it's crazy good. I'm still on Cobra. I plan on staying on Cobra as long as I fucking can um, because, you know, I, I learned it pretty quickly. Like, you know, my wife's obviously on my plan. Like, we would go to the doctor, and you'd finish that off. You'd go to the front desk, and they'd start entering your stuff. And I can't tell you how many times, Joe, I heard, oh, shit, you have really good insurance. Huh. Um, you know, and the insurance is killer. And so I think a lot of, and there's so many, honestly, like so many, you know, you see a lot of ex big leaguers and stuff and in the minors doing coaching stuff. So many of them are just, are, are to be honest with you, in it to, to try to get to pension and, and, and for the insurance because it's great. Um, it's one of the better amenities out there, to be honest with you. I didn't think about that, but yeah, you can't divide your insurance plan. So if you're having, if you have an insurance plan for world class athletes, Right, that's what you get. You, yeah, you've got to give that to everybody. Yeah, I'm, it's killer. Are teams more likely to, or, or have teams become more likely to hire contract workers as opposed um, to employees? Right, yeah, it's it's happened a couple of places. I don't think this is purely as some sort of like insurance cost savings move. I think in some ways it's kind of to um, be a little more secretive about what they're doing. But a good example is the Yankees and like. Remember, I think Eno did this work where he was trying to like measure how many analysts each mm-hmm. team has. And I'm like, that's fine and dandy. But like, I think, you know, the Yankees are well known. Like they have tons of, of contractor analysts as well, you know, and so that, that number might be half of what they actually have. And you're not counting them because they're not listed in the media guide. Um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of analysts, computer programmer, like statistical modeler type of people um, who are on a contract basis. But you don't. It's not to keep people off insurance. It's, it's not just, to keep people off yeah. insurance. It's, it's like maybe it's a halftime thing. Maybe like, and a lot of it are, are like people who, um, 
you know, especially in that world, like baseball's taking advantage of the fact that it's a prestige in- industry. And these are people who can make a lot because of their technical skills being so high end can make a hell of a lot of money elsewhere. Um, and so they're just pulling, pulling, you know, there's doing these one-off contracts with teams. Okay. I'm going to take a job. Well, I used to, I had both James Click and Heim Bloom working for me at one point. So if you excuse me now, I'm going to make some phone calls and line up the, the last job of my life here. <laughs> yeah, go to it. Um, I assume you still have their numbers. Um, <laughs> if they haven't next... blocked me. <laughs> uh, our next email comes from David. And David says, maybe this is a better piece for an article. I, it's always better just to talk about shit. Uh, but what is the difference between writing an amateur report versus a pro one? Seems like you did both the Astros. Did you like one more than the other? Um, I, I, yeah, I wrote amateur reports. I wrote pro reports. Also wrote international reports. And, and the, the, the biggest difference between is the end. So they're all the same at the top. You know, you're still grading tools and trying to paint a picture of this player. Um, for a pro one, you have the most information and the most track record. And it's the easiest, obviously. And, and your job is to tell what this player is now and what he can be. Um, an amateur one, you're obviously talking about what this player is now and what he can be, but you're talking about what he can be after he develops, and you also need to put a dollar figure on him. This is where I would take this player in the draft. I think this, you know, I'm throwing $700,000 on this player, third round. Um, international, you also do a dollar figure. Um, it has a little more context to it, but the most difficult thing about the international thing, and, and difficult ridiculous, the most impossible thing about an international player is that you go to a workout, you go see this international player and you go back to the hotel and you go write your report and you sit down and you go, I now need to communicate what I think this player will look like in a decade. And it's just, it's a silly thing to ask anyone. And I know of some international guys who I think are great. And it's just like, I just saw a 15 year old. He's not physically mature. Um, He's living in a third world country. Some of them are malnourished even. And I'm going to tell you what he's going to look like in a decade. Like throw a dart. Like it's just it's 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 sometimes it's just it's it's an impossible ask. Um, Baseball embryos. Yeah, it's just it's just like I can tell you what this player is now, and I understand, and I can tell you why he's better than his peer group, and therefore why it's a more interesting player. But he's still 14 or 15. Um, and forget about that. Like the, the 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 international market has gotten a little more grosser as we've gone on, and. Um, you know, teams are looking at 13 year olds, teams are looking at 12 year olds now. Um, oh and you get in this situation where like, I, th- that's great. I'm glad you're seeing this player. Um, but do you really think you have any idea what he's going to look like when he's 23? Uh, it, it's just insanity at times. Not to put you on the spot, but, and yeah. this is a field for the question. Would you be in favor of something that, and I think of this in terms of us prospects versus international ones, but would you be in favor of something that raised the age of signing to 18 or Conversely, lowered the age of signing in the U.S. to 16. I think actually that my, my my answer is in between. Where I would like, because you do have 17 year olds in the draft sometimes. I think the best thing to do would be to make it 17. Okay. Um, I also, you know, I think there is room for rules. I am against the international draft because I'm kind of against the draft period. But um, I think there are rules you could put in place, and they are there are some rules about when you can see players and how old you can, they are when you see them. Um, but I think they need to be a little stricter. I don't. I. I don't think. I think we need to get away from scouting thirteen-year-olds. And I think we need to be. You know. I think you. There's a point where you can start doing certain things with a player when they're two years out. Uh, and I think there's a way to try to limit players who are more than two years out. Um, 
and you know there are rules about how you know uh, for ages of players right now internationally about like just bringing them to your complex for a workout there's rules over that but you can still go see them at their own place whenever you want to yeah, and that's where you're seeing the 13 and 14 year olds. And that's where you're seeing, and then you know, like the 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 the, the trainer calls and he goes, "You got to see my new kid." And this kid's 13; he's unbelievable, and everyone's going to go see him because they have to go see him. Do you think we're going to see some type of? I'll use the word revolution in international scouting and signing and this whole process. We'll call it in the next decade, or are we just going to be stuck with this forever? I think you're going to see an international draft in the next CBA. Um, well, I'm also against any sort of draft. So. Yeah, I think you're going to see it's going to be similar to the way they structure the you know I, you you now have the 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 pool the money pool for international mm-hmm. every year right, but that is split up into five chunks. Your money is split up and and it's basically what's going to be the slots for the five rounds. It's it's going to be a very easy transfer for Major League Baseball to just turn this into five rounds and those are your slots for your five rounds. And then after that, I'm sure they'll do something to to to, to cap bonuses like they do after the draft now. So it'll uh, be like the you, you can only spend ten thousand. Like you talk about all the ten thousand dollar kits. Right, you can sign all the ten thousand dollar kids you want. Right, but after the draft, you can't give someone two fifty. Got it. It's going to be something like that. Um, uh, next email, I I, it's, I I put this in. I think it's an interesting subject, but I was interested in your thoughts on this for sure, Joe. Um, it comes from Dawson, who has a creek, and uh, Dawson says. I've been wrestling with a baseball media question that I'm honestly not sure is relevant or even interesting. I think this one is interesting, uh, but I get the sense that you may be especially qualified to answer it. Uh, I might be, but I think Joe might be even more. And I figured, hey, an email can't hurt. Basically, the question is this. Aside from all the standard paths, J-School, internship, beat writing, or D1 ball, minors, analysis gigs, what kind of routes would be best for someone with a non-traditional read non-media, non-super baseball-y background to get into baseball media. Is it really best to just sort of start writing independently, try to build an audience, and eventually get a gig somewhere like Fangraphs or The Athletic? If I remember correctly, you don't have a super traditional background either, right? Right. What was it like for you coming onto the scene? Um, I, I think, it, you know, it, it's a, Joe and I had different paths, but we certainly were just people who really liked baseball and started putting our shit out there, and here we are. I think... on. You know, the most basic, it's 1% of the story, but it, it is still that story. Um, and I still believe that's how you have to do it. Yeah, I think you should kidnap Meg Rowley because otherwise you're screwed. <laughs> you gotta, it's funny, he says, you know, coming on the scene, you said there was no scene. There, none of this existed. I mean, I'm 50. And, right. You know, I was talking baseball online in like the pre internet with Gary Huckabee and Granny Gisarelli and Kate on Davenport. Usenet. Usenet, exactly. I mean, right. um, for those of, for those of you not middle aged yet, Usenet is was a bulletin board that oh covered God. the whole internet. It's just the best way to put this it. Is, this is like trying to exp- I don't even know what this trying, is. Like. It's, it's like, trying to explain dial phones yeah, to people. Exactly. You know, the, the, my mother telling me it was like to play seventy eight records, seventy eight <laughs> RPM records. Um, I I'll be I thought about this. Like I don't know. I I'm, my my generic advice in this case is always this: write, write yeah. and read. Just write. Um, and, and don't just write for... If somebody else is making money off your stuff, you need to be making money off your stuff. But if you just want to hang out a blog spot or whatever the kids are doing these days and just start writing there, post it on Twitter, build an audience. And I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but you don't do anything without starting to write because writing is a muscle. The more you use it, the better you get at it, the stronger it gets. So whatever it is, wherever it is you want to post it, you know, do, do it and kind of go from there um it, it's funny because like i say we kind of created this world we live in 
you know, the prospectus guys and you know, bringing on Dave Peace to start the website. I mean, th- none of this existed when we started. So it's hard for me to know what it's like for a 22-year-old now to come into a world where BP exists and Fangraphs exists and all of these other paths exist. But I guess, the, like I say, the start of it is just write a lot and read a lot. I mean, as I'll tell you right now, I don't read nearly as much as I should. I don't even just mean baseball stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to read outside of sports and baseball and stats just to make you a better thinker and a better writer. Um, I have enormous respect for Keith Law, who does a wonderful job at this. I don't know how he does it with three kids and a new wife and a real job, you know, writing for The Athletic, but he's the most, one of the most prolific readers I know. And I'm incredibly jealous. And I, I, to me, that's one of the weak spots in my game. So I would say to you, Dawson, um, you know, when you're done kissing uh, Joe, Oh man, I didn't. I didn't watch the show. Katie Holmes, whoever she was. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, okay, I had a crush on Katie Holmes. Uh, whenever you get to, you know, whatever you do, it's got to start with just writing, just writing and reading. And as far as like the professionalization of it, like finding out where you're going to land that turns you into a professional writer. I mean, there's a lot of serendipity there. I. This is a life philosophy thing, but I don't. I think we have a lot less control of our lives than we think we do. Like, I think about how I ended up meeting my then-wife, or now ex-wife. I think about how I eventually became a father. And I had very little to do with those paths. It was other things happening that eventually put me in a position to have those things. Baseball's the same thing. You know, I started... I learned about Stratomatic Baseball from an ad in the back of Baseball Digest. Yep, I remember When I was nine because a girl in the neighborhood had a copy of Baseball Digest, and I was in a, a baseball-obsessed eight-year-old who'd never heard of this. So I start playing Strat. Ten years later, I'm talking online on baseball, and I meet Randy Gisarelli, who I join a, uh, an online, or a play-by-mail Stratomatic League with. Randy develops this thing that he offers to Gary and Clay for the initial baseball prospectus. I basically say to Randy, if they're looking for an editor, and 25 years later, I'm talking to you online. I mean, it, and literally things that had nothing to do with where I eventually ended up got me to this. So there's a lot of serendipity involved. And I, I know that's not a great answer for you, Dawson, but man, sometimes you got to get lucky. You do have to get lucky. I also think like you and I have an advantage in the sense that, um, you know, when you started doing what you're doing, no one else was really doing right. it. Right. And, and when I started doing what I was doing, some of the prospect stuff I was doing, nobody else was doing. I was an original reader. Well, I wasn't an original, and, but I, I, that's where you came onto my radar was the prospect report. Prospect report. And like, and, and I don't, you know, it's, it's, this is where you're in trouble, Dawson. I don't know what nobody's doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Like, I, had, I, I don't know how you'd even start. I mean, short of, like I say, writing and reading, but the, the paths to entry are just, I, it's hard, man. It's a, it's more of a mature market than it was 25 years ago. Right, right. We we got to piss around some because we were doing something no else could do what was doing, and 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 like you got to figure out what that thing is, um, and what you want to do. And I think just I think it's very hard to just say I just want to be a baseball player. I think I like I want to focus on this. I want to write about this. Is a, is a much better way to go. Yeah, finding your particular angle, whether it's I mean, Rob. You know, you think about pitcher list. Some of the new things that have come on pitcher list. You think about the uh-huh. Cespedes barbecue guys. You had Jake on here a couple weeks ago. Like, what is what is unique? And those are more visual guys, I guess I would say. So, you know, maybe that's not writing, but you know, who's doing the next thing? Mm-hmm. And how do you, you know, kind of go beyond that? Is that going to be a Spanish site? You know, I I don't speak Spanish. Um, and one of the things that I tell you know young writers in college now is like you have to learn Spanish if you want to cover baseball. You absolutely no question. have to. So you know, Prospectus runs an occasional article. 
uh, I think every day they, they do like one of their articles in Spanish. Yeah, what if really you smart. what if you actually carved out a niche? You know, could you learn Spanish and carve out a niche interviewing uh, you know, Spanish speaking first language Spanish speaking ball players because they don't get nearly enough coverage. Mm-hmm. You know, is, is there something there? I I, I want to make be clear. I'm riffing, and if you want to edit all this out, Kevin, it's probably going to be better for me. Nothing but, gets edited in the podcast. Yeah, oh, that's the God. rule. That's the rule. I'm screwed. Um, but just you know, what is the next thing? And you know, if by the way, Dawson, if you know how to stop the strikeout rate from rising, that's probably a good place to start. <laughs> so that's it for the email again. If you want to. Uh... Get in touch with us. Please do so. We like reading your email. We like talking about your emails. It gives us good topics to discuss. Chinmusic at Fangraphs.com. Joe, it's time to catch up with Joe. Um, 5-7-200. I'm not that hard to catch. <laughs> so um, I, I, I feel like – I hope you take this right, and I think you will. Like you're not a punk rock guy, but I think you've taken a pretty fu- punk rock path in your career. Um, That's as- the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. As a, as, as a, I mean, you are the ultimate DIY dude when it comes to writing about baseball at some point. Um, and I'm sure this happened even before that, cause I've known you a long time. You've got sick of the world around you and you said, fuck it. I'm doing this myself. Um, like what led to this decision? We're like, you know what? I don't want to work for someone. I don't want to have anything else. I, I, I want to just do this myself, run it myself, do it the way I want to. Um, it's a huge leap. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a goddamn gutsy th- way to go. Like, I'm just going to start a newsletter. It's just me. And I'm going to ask people for money. Well, you know, at first I, I did it in Oh two. I'd left prospectus more or less in a fit of peak. Um, and I got to October and I just, I wanted to write. And that, uh, that motivation is a big part of, of all of this. Just, I have all these things I want to say and I want to publish them. So I started the newsletter in October of 2002 at a time when Perspective was kind of going through a bit of transition. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what became Baseball Perspectives Premium in 2003. Six years later, you know, we kind of gone as far as I could take that. I decided to leave at the end of 2009. Um, and it was the same thing. I was writing for a Sports Illustrated at the time. But that was, you know maybe once a week online, once in the magazine. I used to be in kids, Sports Illustrated used to publish every week. So you could be in it 35 times a year. <laughs> um, so I, I literally got to May and I just, Marina had just been born and I was just aching to write. So I said, well, I tried this play once and basically emailed everybody whose email address I had. I said, I'm going to do this again. Um, and, you know, it just kind of grew from there. I mean, I just, but it was all motivated by, I have all of this stuff to say and no place to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it'd be nice. I mean, I, I don't know when I get to the part of my career where I'm Rick Riley and I do 800 words a week for 200 grand a year. I don't know if I ever get there. But to the motivation to say something about baseball has driven all of it. So, you know, uh, I'm, I, and again, you know, fortunate that I was able to do it from a platform of having people who've been reading me through Prospectus and seeing me on ESPN and reading me in Sports Illustrated for the last decade. Um, it's obviously much harder to do if you don't have that profile, but I was very fortunate. Um, about 700 people the first year. Uh, as of this morning, there are 2,300-odd paid subscribers. And the thing about an independent project is that you you don't need 50,000 people to make it work. Um, right. You know, you're just not paying all the different levels in between. But even more importantly, I only have to write about the things I want to write about. Um, and there are a lot of daily stories in baseball I just don't care about. And I just... 
you know, again, there's certain things you have to nod to all the time, but, you know, if I don't want to write about the Amir Garrett-Javier Baez fight, I just don't. You know, I write about something else that day. And the, mm-hmm. the, the level of control that I have is a big part of it. Um, I'm, you worked with me, Kevin. You know, I can, it's fair to say I can be a difficult person to work with. I mean, we help, we, we try to run perspectives together, and I'd love to go back to the 2000s and be a different person, trust me. But You and me both. Um, I like that. You know, I just, I, I have that control. And I have an editor. So I have a, a longtime reader, Scott Simon, who edits most of the newsletters. And he saves me a lot of days. I think there's a lot of value to editing. Um, mm-hmm. I know that Substack has actually started to offer that to people, some editing services. Because I think you're learning that if you just publish stuff unedited every day, your mistakes leak in, some small, some big, but it, it chips away at the value of the product. So I'm pretty far afield here, but I'm just, I love writing. I love writing about baseball. And even while there's a perception that I'm an old guy who hates the game because I talk about strikeouts a lot. I love the game. I just want it to be the best it can be. I mean, do you ever scuffle as far as like, I don't know what I'm going to write today? Oh, yeah. Um, when the, the nice thing about what I do is I cannot write that day. The newsletter is not designed to be a I, – I, I don't know if you get Craig Calcaterra's uh, newsletter. Yeah, yeah, sure. But and, and you're right. And he's – he's, He writes every he's day. Commi- he's committed to it. Yeah, 6.30 yeah. in the morning. Boom. He writes his 3,000 words, and God bless him. I, I'm just not wired that way. Some days mm-hmm. I'm going to write 2,000 words. Some days I'm going to wake up. I'm going to stare at the page and say, you know what? I'm going for a walk. Um, the flip side of that is that in October I write 40,000 words. and So it's definitely kind of structured for myself, but you know, I, there are days. And I'm, I'm, in a, I'm actually in a moment right now where I'm not having a lot of those. I don't know. I don't really know thing. what causes it or not causes it, but I guarantee you. I'll I'll have a week in June where just nothing will be coming. Just I just won't have a thing to write. But fortunately right now I'm in a productive mode. And I think most writers have go through these ebbs and flows of where it really starts to flow. And I go back to what I said earlier about to, to Dawson. Um it's it's a muscle. It's easier to write every day when you're writing every day. And and how did you get through um COVID no baseball time? I got. I was screaming at my television a lot. Um, I think we roughly share the same politics. Although I was not nearly as activated until in the last four, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was angry a lot. Um, and then I was not as productive. You, know, you hear about people who learn to bake and create and they solve cold fusion. I wasn't one of those people. No, those, I, those, that's the minority. You do hear about them, but that's the minority. I, I organized the apartment. I, I, I changed a lot of things in my apartment. Um, I didn't write a time. I wrote when I could, when there was baseball news to write about. I did some other nonsense. But you tried, I tried to, you to read. Didn't, you, didn't, you didn't force anything. Like you, no. you, can get, you can get to a point where like, I've only done two newsletters this week. I got to give the people a third, but I don't like, what do I got? Nothing's happening. Well, I, I, my excuse, well, I don't say excuse, but one of the ways I got around that is that I basically put everybody on pause for four months so that if you had a one year subscription that ended on May 5th. I just pushed you back for. I just pushed everybody back four months. So I didn't feel as bad about not writing. I said, right. you know, when baseball starts again, I'll start the clock again. But I'm not making you pay for, you know, this nonsense. So I felt at least that enabled me to go, you know, a week with nothing to say. And also, too, I was having trouble writing, not just because there was no baseball, but because I was angry and frustrated. And, you know, I think a lot of the emotions a lot of us were going through uh, a year ago now. So, you know, I think that's maybe one of the reasons I'm having success writing now is that we have baseball back and it feels like we've got this flood of stories to write about but um no i wish i'd been more productive during lockdown but you know i i i picked up stratomatic again and then i put it down i wish i could read more but i could concentrate so i just you know I, i'm sure i streamed 
I'm were you sure playing Strata, Strata Medic on a computer or were you rolling dice? I was on – so um, the tournaments are played over Skype now using mm-hmm. an online dice roller. Okay. So I played a handful of those. And you just – you talk on Skype like we're doing or – well, we're using Zencast or whatever. Um, and there's a roller and you click it and it's, it's a great community. I've been part of it for 30-odd years now. Less so the last decade. I haven't played as much. But um, it was it was fun to, to dig in on the cards again. I have a couple of really good uh, friends through Strat. So it was kind of like reconnecting with them was a big part of the value of playing for me. It's like, oh, I'm talking to Sean mm-hmm. every day again. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that part. Uh, but no, I was, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit trying to write, you know, trying to figure out what are the things I really enjoy. I used to, I was a poker player for a while. I don't really enjoy that as much anymore. I was a golfer. I don't really enjoy that. I'm trying to figure out like, what are going to be the interests over the next 10 years? Mm-hmm. All I really want to do is hang out with my daughter. <laughs> um, you always kind of, I always kind of referred to you, um, as kind of a proud baseball outsider. Um, I think you, do you still see yourself that way? Yeah. I, I used to call it the informed outsider. That's the perspective I tried to write from. And uh, you, you've been doing this for, you know, over two decades now. Um, how do you think just over the last 10 years, the way you look at baseball has changed or has it? That's a tough one. Um, because the first thing I think of is, well, the game has changed. So my mm-hmm. relationship with it, ship to it has changed. It's interesting because I have a lot more. The reason I was an informed outsider is because, I mean, coming through perspectives, you know, in 1996, nobody would talk to us. Right. So you kind of had to establish this position. Well, I can call GMs now and have conversations. And what I found is that that makes my work worse because I feel an obligation to the person that I'd rather not leak into my writing. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically always off the record, no contact if I'm talking to people within the game. If I ever need something, you'll know it at the front of that start of the conversation. But if it's just we're talking, none of that ever goes towards content. So I really want to maintain that same position because I think it's made me a better writer. I write my worst when I'm thinking, oh man, do I really want to blast this guy? When he's Mm -hmm. talked to me, he's given me his time, and now i got to tell him, well, I still think your decision stunk. I'm just, so it's easier for me just to kind of stay on the outside. But as far as relationship to the game, I... I don't enjoy the ballpark as much. I think that's one of the things that probably has changed the most. Some of that is I don't like either of the two New York parks. Um, I don't like the process. The whole process of getting in now is just a reminder of all the things that are screwed up. Like, I'm going through a metal detector to go to a ball game. uh, The actual game experience, like the ballpark experience that is supposed to appeal to the casual fan, does not do a whole lot for me. Mm-hmm. The loud noises and just you know, I'm an old man. That's then it's fine. <laughs> it's funny because when I think about going to a game once I get vaccinated, I don't think about going to Yankee or Shea or City. Excuse me, I think about going to Coney Island, which is actually going to be a Double A affiliate of the Mets now. Uh, so you're going to have a better brand of baseball. But that to me is a wonderful experience. That's it's the problem is it's very far from where I am. It's 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 a quite a hike, but I mean that experience has been probably the most fun I've had at games the last few years. Actual major league games. For all the reasons we talked about, the on-field play plus the ballpark experience itself, eh. which is a shame too, because I'm like 11 subway stops from the stadium. Right, and I'll, I'll, I agree with you, and I, 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 and you know, part of it is the you know the the world of baseball that that really you know kind of gets my juices flowing, but also like I'd way rather go to a minor league game, and some of that there is a chunk of that that's that's just convenience. Like I would far rather just kind of stroll up, park a hundred feet away from the stadium, stroll in, than deal with the hour plus getting in and out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a pain in the ass. And I'll um, say that it's a juice squeeze thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So, uh, you know, it's, it's, we talked about, or you talked about a little bit about like serendipity, right? Um, and, and you needing things like, do you, are you just sitting here going, you know what? The newsletter's here. The newsletter is successful for me. I'm just going to keep doing the newsletter. Um, and we'll see where it goes. Is that, is that your worldview or, or is there something more to it? I would say there is some time back in like the, I've gone through this twice. Once was when Prospectus really started to, to break out, to, to get big. And once is maybe four or five, well, maybe four or five years into the, four or five years into the newsletter where it's like, this isn't the thing I'm doing to get to the next thing anymore. Mm-hmm. This is, this is my life. And, you know, I, I want to say the middle of the 2000s where I realized, no, this is, I'm a baseball writer now. I'm not trying to get a job in the industry or I'm not trying to move up in the media pyramid. This is what I do. And then maybe, you know, when I started doing the newsletter, I did it as a fixed base. So pay me $20, you get the newsletter until February 14th of the next year. Because I never wanted to commit in case something else came along. And I had Mm -hmm. offers and I just never, nothing really ever jumped out at me. The independence ended up being a real appeal for me. And then maybe four or five years into the newsletter, it was, okay, now I'm going to start, it's a one-year subscription because I'm committing to this project. And then I started taking two-year subscriptions and three-year subscriptions. And now I actually have about 160 people are lifetime subscribers. So this is what I do now. The newsletter is my last job. Would I like to do other things? Yeah, I mean, I look, I mean, two years ago, I was still writing for SI. I was still writing for Baseball America. And the pandemic basically wiped both of those out. Right. I, I would like to have the larger audience. Um, your influence as a writer is tied directly to the size of your audience. And losing those outlets has certainly been a, a pain. Um, I didn't do anything for the SI Baseball Preview this year for the first time since... 06, 07, I don't remember what year it was. And that mm-hmm. stung. I mean, being an SI was definitely a point of pride for me. Um, but as far as like the next thing, there, if I just do the newsletter for the next 20, 15, 20, 30 years, I'm perfectly happy. This I love writing. I get to write whatever I want to write. I've got a good audience. I've got an incredible audience, God. I, the thing that I feel most guilty about is I don't respond to every email. Yeah. Because I couldn't. Because it would literally be, that would then be my job. It's just literally, because they're not just... Hey Joe, what did uh, Algiana Frito hit in 1957? It's here's a really thought, well thought out idea based on something you wrote, and now we I respond and he responds and she responds and all of a sudden, this is all I've done for today. And right, you're lost. I feel terrible about that, but I, it's it goes to the quality of the emails. Are there other things I'd like to do? I mean, you know, I used to do TV. I did TV a lot for a decade. I don't do that anymore. I'd like the opportunity. I mean, that's honestly, it's as much so I could. So Marina could say, my dad's going to be on TV today. Mm. Um, a podcast? I think we talked about this off the air. I would love a podcast where all I had to do was click a button and somebody else handled everything else. Like Randy and I have talked about relaunching. We had a popular podcast for about five years. And it was really good. Thank you. Um, and it just, it's, it's, the, it's all of the other stuff. I, I just, I wanted, I want to write and I want to talk. And I know that's selfish and privileged. I get all that. But I just my days of learning new technologies and all of that other stuff are done. I, I I would love to have a podcast where all I did was write and talk. Where, where I did was talk, because um, mm-hmm. I, I do it. I actually have with the newsletter. There's a lot of non-writing work that does, and, and the bigger the newsletter gets, the more of that there is. This person's email is bouncing, sending out renewal notices, all all the stuff that Substack basically takes care of it for, uh, for its people. But you know, no, I think this is you know I no longer I want to say I no longer think about it. Um. You know, you won the World Series a couple of years ago. Uh, Mike Groupman, I think, was the first BP alum. I didn't know Mike, but he was with the Royals in 15, I want to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
I have some one of my closest friends is a scout for the Rays. And I think about you guys getting up every day with that sense of purpose. I mean, I get up every and I want to write a better piece than Craig did or Jay Jaffe did or whatever. I mean, that's there's a competition there that is among all writers, but it's not the same as getting up every day and trying to win a championship. But that's just not my path anymore. But I that's the one thing. Like, did you did you ever think about wanting to work for a team? I think in the when I was young, mm-hmm. there was a greater opportunity in the sense that I mean, when we started doing this, baseball was still kind of stuck in the seventies. Right. Somebody with my particular knowledge and skill set might have been able to help a team in 1998. I'm not qualified anymore. When you look at what these teams have in their front office, the and where baseball analysis is gone, I'm no longer qualified to work in a front office. There was a time where I could have helped a team. I no longer think that's the case. Um, I, I had one informal conversation. Literally, I remember it. I had one informal conversation over the last 25 years, and mm. it didn't go anywhere. Um, I... It was a team that wasn't close to New York, and I wasn't going away from Marina. Um, but I no longer... I mean, don't get me wrong. And again, I'm jealous of the fact that my friends get to do this, because I think that would be a really fun way to live. But at the same time, it's just it's not, you know... Unless somebody who really likes me decides to buy a team. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and even then, i got I got to go out and hire 15 people. No, it's... The, you lived through it. I mean, you were, you were with the... When did you go to the Astros? 12? 2012. So seven years. I mean, Eight. the 2010s were really like a hundred years in baseball history. When you oh, think yeah. about where the industry was in 10 and where the industry is now, you lived through that revolution. Yeah. And I, that's, I, I, that's what I, I think that I just no longer have the skill set to work in a major league front office. It'd be great. But, but yeah, there, when I think about like that, waking up every day, trying to win a championship, as somebody who's hyper-competitive, that has mm. some appeal. So uh, real quick, we'll do this again at the end of the show, but if, if people want to subscribe to your newsletter, what do they do? Go to joshean.com, S-H-E-E-H-A-N. There's, that's, I post uh, excerpts for everything I do, an occasional full piece. Actually, if you go up now, you'll see the Thursday piece I did on the John Means No Hitter is up there. There's subscription information. There's a link you can click to email me if you have any questions. Let me know. You know, if you heard me on Kevin's show, let me know if you, if you enjoyed it. Um, and then, like say, the subscription information with the rates are all there. Um, you can actually spend a lot of time just scrolling back through because I've been posting stuff there for a few years now. So um, people check that out. And of course, if you want to follow me at Joe under, underscore Sheehan on Twitter where I'm trying to get off. I actually have set a, a line. If I get to 3,000 subscribers, I'll quit Twitter. <laughs> you, uh, I'm really not kidding. I, the, Twitter was something different six or seven years ago. Oh, I you're telling me, different. baby. Yeah, I, I, the first thing I noticed in my return was Twitter got... Twitter That's right, because you were gone dur- while you were with the Astros. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I was in the shadows. Twitter got, Twitter got real mean. It mean, mean and, not, and not just that. Part of it's me. I want Twitter to be rec sport baseball. Like, I want everybody to bring facts and data to their arguments and have a serious baseball conversation. And that's just not what Twitter is. That's my fault. If I try to eat soup with a fork, that's not the fork's fault. Right. Um, It just, yeah, it just felt like we were having a lot more fun eight years ago. Yeah. Well, I think we were in a lot of ways. You know, yeah, it's also also true. Um, It's time for a moment of culture, Joe. Do you go first or do I go first? Whatever. I'll go first. Please go first. I'm going to talk about a video game. Nice. And it's 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 one that I would recommend to your daughter as well. So even though she's playing more advanced stuff like Among Us, so uh, 
about 20 years ago, uh, one of the more fun games to come out for the Nintendo platform was Pokemon Snap, in which you simply take photos of Pokemon, and they just released a new Pokemon Snap 20 years later on the <laughs> Nintendo Switch. And you know, this goes back, we've talked about, or we've referred to this countless times in this episode about how shitty the world has gotten. This is a game where there are various uh, various levels that are all different uh, kind of biomes, if you will. There's a beach level and a desert and a forest and a cave and all that kind of stuff. And there's Pokemon in those caves or on those beaches and things like that. And you get in a little vehicle that goes on a rail. You don't drive the vehicle at all. You simply are holding a camera. And all you do is look around and take photos of Pokemon. How gentle. Exactly. You're, you're exactly. And so you folk and and... You can you have little fruits you can throw them and other little and little music you can play to try to get different behaviors out of them and if you can get you know get a good snapshot of that behavior it's a different star level and you can try to fill all your get all your different behaviors for the Pokemon and you replay the level and try to get better photos and you know Nintendo's very good at this obviously they had to smash it through for they had, they had the official video game of the pandemic in Animal Crossing um, and now this game. This is what we need right now. This is you're not killing anyone. You literally have no health. You can't die. There's no fail state. There's literally no fail state. You just make the run, take your photos. You show them to the guy, and he grades them, and he goes, "Hey, keep these. They're better." You want to try again? You go, "Yeah." And if you you know if you do well enough, the le- <clears throat> the level, the biome upgrades, and all of a sudden there's new Pokemon or they're behaving differently, and you can get different and better photos. That's the whole gameplay loop, and it's brilliant and wonderful and relaxing. And my wife and I play every night, and I can't recommend it enough. It sounds like a fun game to play with somebody else. This is what, like, every yeah. every night we're done watching, you know, whatever we're watching, we're kind of, we've lost some shows that we finished. Um, and it's like, oh, let's just play Pokemon. And we'll just kind of hand the controller back and forth. Oh, you do a run, I'll do a run. And it gets us through, it gets us through the night. Cause we're, it's, we're still in the pandemic right now. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I, I, you know, we talked offline. I'm still about a week out from being fully vaccinated. And even when I do, it's not like I'm going to go out every night. Like, you, we're, we're all in the same world. We're like, Okay, dinner's over. What am I going to do to get the to, to get to the end of the day now? Um, you know, and you watch some baseball, and you also, you know, or in my situation, I have a wife who wants to watch other things. You watch the show and stuff. Keep an eye on baseball, and and you know, what are we going to do now? Well, let's get to play some Pokemon Snap. It's relaxing. It's chill. It gets through. We have a good time. We laugh, and it's a fun time. And I, I I think it's I think Nintendo's gotten very good at creating these kind of games where it's there's it's these zero stress games with no fail state. Um. And I think they're perfect for the horror of the world we live in right now. That sounds good. I I don't play games. The last last game I was really good at was probably Defender. And there are a lot of people shaking their heads like, "What's that?" It's no, a yeah. console game with the the actual you know the, the big arcade game. Um, yeah, it's a it's a, a a scrolling shooter would be the genre at this point. Yeah. I get excited when I see those Miss Pac Man Galaga combination games in a, in a oh, place now. Yeah, Galaga was was, was the, the the big high school game. Um, but I've, I've literally never owned a console, and I, I actually during the pandemic I did think about it. Cause I'm like, let me, I gotta, I gotta find something, you know. And I ended yeah. up not doing it. And a lot of it was like it would have been sports games. Like I would have enjoyed because the the last sport game I think so in college we had a Nintendo, and we played a lot of NBA Jam. I think it was NBA Jam. What was the yeah. one with the ball when the ball was on fire? Yeah, he's on fire. NBA Jam. Yeah, we played a lot of that, um, and I wasn't very good at it. Um, but that was like the last time I even had a console in my home. And I look at the the video game graphics now for sports games, and it just blows me away. Mm-hmm. I kind of wouldn't mind like just taking a look at what that's that's like. But again, it's it's the out of the park thing where if I start doing something like that, I I get lost in it. I really gotta like manage you know my time. And the other thing is, 
I think you alluded to this. I, I I need to find something that isn't sports. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe this is the year I read the Power Broker. You know, I should it's, actually that should be my motor culture. Oh yeah, I just finished the Power Broker. <laughs> no, um, you know, I, I wish I had something cool for you. Um, I know it's it's totally fine. I, I I just real quick like it's it is something that's changed in my life since um since October of last year in the sense that like there are nights now where I can say you know what I'm just gonna watch a movie with Mark with Margaret. Like I'm not gonna watch a baseball game now. I'm gonna watch a movie with Margaret. I just did that. I haven't done that for eight years. See, you know, the Astros um, are holding you back. Absolutely. So what do you got? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to say, you know, well, let me give you this obscure Truffaut film that really has gotten me through the pen. No, but look, I'm like everybody else, man. I finally watched Fleabag. I watched Ted Lasso. I love them both more than I can possibly express. Yes, I, 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 I both exceeded my expectations. I thought I would like Fleabag. I honestly thought I would not like Ted Lasso. I'm like, I'm like this is like, I, I, I don't like sports entertainment or, or, or fictional entertainment based around sports. I think it's generally bad. And it was fantastic. I don't like things that are earnest. And this was earnest, <laughs> and I loved it. it was I, exactly. I just could not believe how much I enjoyed it. I've gone back to the dark scene probably once a week now. But neither one of those are, are my pick. I'm going to go even more lowbrow than that. Um, I was looking for a series to watch that was just going to take my mind off everything. And yeah. there, USA is, has a bunch of really good examples of this. And I got, I got pulled into Burn Notice. It's about a, a spy who basically gets kicked out of the spy game because somebody's found him, and he has basically has to build his life back. And I loved Alias when it was on a thousand years ago, and this is like Alias Light because it has you know USA's budget, not ABC's budget. And, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, Jeffrey Donovan and Gabrielle Anwar. People might remember from Scent of a Woman. She was the girl who does the tango with Al Pacino. Yeah. Um, and the Sky Bruce Campbell. The chemistry among the leads really brought me in. And it was funny. And it was... I mean, they started blowing up stuff, but not in a way that was like you're watching, you know, a, a Michael Mann movie. Right. It was... It just brought me in. So I watched the first season, dropped it for a while. And then I would say right before the season started, I started watching it again. And it just was fun. It was, it was the kind of popcorn TV I wanted at the end of the day. And I literally just this last week finished it up. It's seven seasons, maybe a hundred or so episodes. And it ends up almost like a, you talk about video games, like a thing where he just keeps going upward. Up. He ends up finally meeting the final boss. Does it stick the landing? It's so hard to it do. It absolutely sticks. And that's, that's, it actually slowed down. Like a lot of series, like four seasons in, it was like, you guys are wandering a bit. You know, you're kind yeah, of like yeah, filling yeah. it out. I think every TV series has this. But no, Hard the not. last six episodes were some of the best work that they they did. And you were invested in the characters and they were real. They were it wasn't there was some Deus es machina in there. I'm not going to I'm not going to if I'm saying that right. But on the whole, it was exactly the way, you know, the games are over. I'm done for the night. Let me pick off a couple of episodes of this. So right. Burn Notice, it's available. Can I say it's going to come off as an advertisement? No, go go. It, it's on Amazon. Uh, you can check it out there. Um, and now, you know, I don't know if I'm going to maybe go to Suits or some of the other, but the USA shows are just perfect popcorn television. And I, it was what I needed. Now, like I say, maybe now I have to go watch, you know, some obscure French film. No, to, you to did, look, look, man, we've, we've talked about those things and, and, and we've had multiple co-hosts as well as myself talk about sometimes you just need to watch a, a European version of Love Island for a week. <laughs> so was it Stephanie who was watching that? <laughs> David Roth as well. We did it. My wife and I did it early in the pandemic. It's the trashiest show in the history of the world and we couldn't stop watching it. Do you feel guilty for not watching everything? Not at all because I think most of it's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel bad sometimes. Like we, my, 
you know, we subscribe to a lot of streaming things like everybody else in this world at this point. At, at times, like, I will feel guilty, like, oh, shit, we haven't watched enough stuff on Criterion mm-hmm. this month. Um, and there's all these films you want to see. But I'll be, like, sometimes, and I think, again, for the 8,000, I think part of it is the state of the world. There, are, I, I have more days than ever where it's like, you know what? As much as I'm think, as much as I've heard this is a great video, a great movie, I think this amazing, you know, two hour movie about a family living in poverty in Brazil is not something I can do right, right. now. I think I need uh, drunk people from Essex, you know, fucking on camera. I'm saying, I don't what know what I Love need. Island is. I'm assuming it's some kind of bachelor type thing. Yeah, they all live together and and get drunk and have sex and decide they're couples. Yeah, that's about the whole thing. That that sounds workable. It's fantastic. Um, but I mean, so, but so, I mean, there are times where I, you know, what I just need to watch garbage right, right. now. You know, and the, you know, it's, it's not everybody. There are I I do think in the current world we are in, I do have more days like that than I used to. Because the everyday life is just a lot more stressful, and this is where you yeah. hope. You know, everybody's vaccinated by the summer. You're not going to have a normal summer like 2019. No. But certainly we hope that by 2022. And then, you know, we'll have a, everybody be happy again. And then you can watch movies about people living in poverty in Brazil. Have you been to a game yet? No. I have not been vaccinated yet. So I'm not. Oh, okay. Do you, uh, I mean. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just haven't gotten around to it. No, I understand. I think we're in a good place where it's vaccines are, are starting to come to the people as well. Um you know, you see this happening at games and stuff. Where if you come to the game, you get a you can get a shot. Yeah, I just saw that today. They're going to be doing it. The Long Island Ducks are doing quite a that. few places are doing. That. I think that's I think that's kind of the next step. Like like you know, active going stuff has really kind of started to trail off, and they need to start taking it to the people as well. I'm I'm uh, optimistic. Yeah, I, and I, I wasn't for most of this. No, I I we I you know talked about this with someone recently. Just like in January, even knowing I think it was with Stephanie on the show. Like even you know in January, like knowing that there was going to be a change in administration, and and you know what I thought correctly would be a much better vaccine distribution system um you know i still talk to mario i said i bet we're good i I bet we get our shots like late summer um you know and here we are in early may and we're almost past our second Um, september is what i was thinking yeah and so it's they've exceeded all expectations there and it it does make me feel like we're getting to a point where we can i don't know if we'll ever be normal again but at least get 90 percent there do you think we'll have fifty thousand in the stands of the world series absolutely and, and and but let me let me append that with whether it's the right move or not. We will absolutely have that. Yeah, that's a good point. I, uh, I think every team opened the year with a plan in mind, with a scaling up in mind, and I think whether science says it's a good idea or not, they are going to continue to go with that plan that they set in March. Well, yeah, uh, baseball has been forcing the issue certainly from the start but and, and i don't want to pick on them all the sports leagues yeah have been out sports. ahead of, a little bit ahead of the science right and i think they'll, they'll continue to do so but i i do think whether you know which no matter what direction things go i think they're going to stick to there, there's no way they're going to back off that plan they might accelerate it but there's no way they're going to back off it would you go to a world series game with fifty thousand people in the stands yes fully vaxxed yeah outside if it's outside yeah well i'm trying to think of the dome teams right now yeah exactly <laughs> Uh, yeah, Houston. Oh, can you can you do that without being shot on sight? <laughs> I'm just testing to see if you'll really edit that out. We're gonna see. We're gonna see if he edits anything out of the. Podcast. No, you'll get that. You're that. <laughs> I think I could. Um, yeah, I could. I, you know, wear a disguise or something. <laughs> You're not easy to disguise, sir. <laughs> um, 
Joe, I want to thank you for coming on. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's been a, a long time since we've uh, spoken this long in one setting. Um, and again, if you want to uh, subscribe to Joe's newsletter, and if you don't, you absolutely should. You go to joesheehan.com. Where do they want to go if they if they want to follow you on Twitter and watch you tweet and watch you tweet? Joe underscore Sheehan, and the underscore is important. There's a, a very nice man in St. Louis who got to Twitter before I did. And every now and then people will be yelling at him about something stupid I said. So the underscore uh, is important. Yeah, my my Twitter is Kevin underscore Goldstein, and there is a Kevin Goldstein. And uh, based on the tweets I get, I can't imagine some of the things he sees. Exactly. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, thanks again to Murray Johnson for talking about Sumo with us. Uh, again, if, if you have a... Uh, Apple TV, if you have a Roku, if you have a Chromecast, if you download the NHK app, NHK World app, it's free and the Sumo content's free. You don't have to pay anything to become a Sumo fan. And uh, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. It's a party in my soul Lights a fire up inside me When I hear that rock and roll And when that jam gets bumping I can't help but start to move When that rhythm gets me tipsy That intoxicating groove Got some shaking in my body I got this stomping in my feet You know I can't control this dancing With this big fat beat Oh, there ain't no I'm not checking on my phone Cause I'm walking with the baseline